Hey, this is Matt Stacy, youth pastor at New Life, and this is our podcast. I hope that the preaching and teaching you listen to here encourages you and strengthens you in your walk with God. This podcast is a ministry of New Life, and as such, is completely free to the listener. That being said, if you feel led to give to this ministry, we want to make that available to you. You can text GIVE to 833-793-0451. You can also give online through the Tithely app by searching New Life Tabernacle. Thank you, and we hope you enjoy the message. Praise the Lord, everybody. Amen. I'm thankful to be in the house of the Lord on this Wednesday night. We got it up there, Brother Matthew? Okay, let's go ahead and pray over this, and then we're going to dive right in to our lesson tonight. Jesus, we thank You, Lord, for this opportunity to come before You. Lord, I ask that You would help me to teach in a way that You can anoint. Help me to say something worth saying to these precious people. Let the seed of Your Word fall on good ground tonight. In Jesus' precious name we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. If I can get my Bible opened up to where we are. We have got to pray against the sickness that is coming around. For my own life, I rebuke it in Jesus' name. I don't handle sickness very well. Okay. We are looking at, this is our 22nd lesson in the book of Revelation. Brother Caleb suggests maybe I I should teach from a a, a shorter passage every once in a while. Tonight we're actually covering not three, but 17 uh, verses of Scripture. So hang in there. Brother Caleb, we're going to get it done tonight. Amen. Uh, by way of introduction, so last week we finished up teaching, looking at, studying chapter 11 of the book of Revelation. If you remember in chapter uh, 11, the trumpet sounds, what is known as the seventh trumpet sounded, um, and we read all of the kind of results of that. Uh, this is not a pause that's taking place, but if you understand the layout of the book of Revelation, not everything is in chronological order. So at the in chapter 11, the, the seventh trumpet is sounded, and the effects of that are going to take place from 15, chapter 15 to chapter 19. We see the effects of that. Chapters 12 through 14, what we're going to be studying over the next a few weeks is everything that happens in between there. So we've been, we've been getting kind of a view from heaven's perspective on what's happening in the world, uh, as the Lord is pouring out judgment on the earth in the book of Revelation. Uh, now we're going to be getting, if you will, it's going to be after chapter 12, but we're going to be getting kind of Satan's perspective. Uh, of what's happening during the revelation, uh, during the end time here. Chapter 12, what we're going to be looking at tonight, uh, we see that Satan has been, we know really that Satan's been engaged in a war with God and those that are faithful to him from the beginning of time. 
talk about that a little bit more. But what we see here is kind of, and what we're going to be studying from now until the end of the book, is uh, Satan's last great effort or his last great push to overthrow the will of God and stop the kingdom of God from being established. So if you're if you're looking at the book of Revelation and you're wondering what's happening, what is what's going on, uh, it is a great war that's taking place, and it's Satan's last ditch effort to stop the will of God and the kingdom of God from being uh, established. What we're going to study tonight is chapter twelve. And what chapter 12 does is John receives a vision and it's kind of setting the stage, if you will, for everything that's going to follow uh, from chapters uh, 13 on. It's going to reveal the main characters to us. It's going to show us uh, kind of the main players of the end time and uh, those that we're going to see in the rest of the book of Revelation. Let's dive right in. Verses 1 and 2 tonight of chapter 12. And there appeared a great wonder in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet, and upon her head a crown of twelve stars. And she, being with child, cried, travailing in birth and pained to be delivered. So the first thing we're going to notice is a great sign. The Bible calls it a great wonder. Uh, the word for a wonder is samion in the Greek. Samion actually is a symbol that points to a reality. So we've been talking, as we're going through the book of Revelation, what have we said? We've said that it's always best to give a literal interpretation unless the Bible gives us a cue that it should not be interpreted literally. Here's our cue. Here's our sign. It's, it's uh, there for everyone to read. John says he sees a great sign or a great wonder or a great symbol uh, in heaven. And so that cues us in that the imagery we're getting ready to see, that we're getting ready to study, is not literal, but it's symbolic. And the interpretation that's going to come forth, uh, we have to see things as, uh, in this chapter anyways, as being symbolic because John gives us the clue um, right there in the text. Now, uh, interestingly enough, if you're ever looking at a uh, commentary of the book of Revelation, you can turn to chapter 12, and there's going to be a bunch of different perspectives, but you can, you can tell whether or not the book, uh, the commentary, is worth anything based on who they say the woman of Revelation 12 is, we're going to talk about that uh, tonight. She is, she is the first of, well, the second rather, I, mis, I misplaced that. She's the second of four symbolic women that are mentioned in the book of Revelation. The first actually uh, is a real, was a real lady, we, we read that in chapter 2, but uh, she had the symbolic name of Jezebel, right? Because she was a false teacher. She was leading people away from God, and yet she was in the house of God. So you've got to be careful. Just because somebody claims to be a Christian or claims to be anointed, or all of that kind of stuff, what matters is whether or not they're in the book. That's what matters, whether or not they're teaching the truth. So you can say that you're a Christian, uh, all you want, but Jesus said you'll know them by their fruits. 
he said, to try the spirits. It's okay to judge uh, the speaker to make sure that they're in the word. The Bible calls the Bereans, those that tried the apostles to make sure the apostles were in the word, uh, they called them more noble. The Bereans were considered more noble. Uh, I want to preach a, a sermon sometime called Be a Berean because we need more of that. We need discernment today. So the first lady that's mentioned uh, symbolically, she's a real lady, but her name is symbolic, Jezebel. Um, and then we have this lady that's mentioned here. And then later on in chapter 17, we're going to find a lady that's described as a harlot. And she represents the apostate church. We'll, we'll cover that in chapter 17. And the fourth that's mentioned symbolically is the bride of Christ. So there's four ladies that are mentioned symbolically in the book of Revelation. This lady is uh, one of them. The question, though, is who is she? And this is where conflict arises. People disagree, but it's very important that we know who she is. It does matter. It does matter who this lady is and how we interpret uh, this lady. There are several different views on this lady. A couple of them actually uh, made me laugh to myself. Um, throughout history, there have been uh, ladies who have read this in the Bible and have decided that it represents them. Um, the, the lady that founded the, the Church of Science, uh, I, I guess that's, that's what it's called. Uh, it's a religion of Christian science, or I, need, I should have gotten the details for that. But she said that this lady was actually um, symbolic of her. There was another, there was another lady... Uh, in church history, uh, there was a few of them that actually they read this woman in chapter 12 here of Revelation. They decided, well, that's talking about me. Um, we can we can uh, assuredly say that it was not. So I'm not going to give any time to those tonight uh, because we are all sane people and that would probably <laughs> drive us nuts. There's no reason to give uh, any time to certain theories such as that. However, uh, in some people, uh, the Catholic Church, some uh, their kind of main claim is that this is actually representative of Mary. Um, we're going to discuss several reasons why that can't be so. Uh, the two main theories is that either this is the church uh, symbolically being represented here, this lady, or this is Israel. It's the church or it's Israel. Um, reasons why it's not the church, and I, and I don't want to take too much time here. Uh, the reason why this is not the church is pretty simple. If you read the context of chapter 12, which we're going to get into, this child that she actually gives birth to, we'll talk about it later, but we believe that that child represents Jesus, and I think that the teaching, is the symbolism is very clear there. And so it's very simple why this can't be the church. It can't be the church because the church doesn't give birth to Jesus. Jesus builds the church. The church doesn't build Jesus. The church didn't create Jesus. Jesus created the church. Upon this rock, I will build my church. It's his church. He birthed the church. He created the church. He is the leader. He's the head of the church. So this can't possibly be uh, the church here. And we'll discuss that even later as we talk about who that child is. I believe that this is, this lady here is, uh, symbolic of Israel. She represents Israel. 
Uh, there are several reasons why that is. Uh, Israel is often depicted in the Old Testament as a woman in travail. Uh, there's, if you want scriptural references of that, come see me afterwards. Isaiah 9, 6 tells us, um, it's a very well-known portion of scripture, for unto us a child is born. Um, that tells us that, that Jesus uh, came in the flesh from Israel. Unto us a child is born. Now, Christians like to read that, and we like to think, well, that's talking about us. Actually, that's talking about Israel. Isaiah is prophesying to Israel. When you read, unto us a child is born, it's talking about Israel. Whose Messiah is it? It's Israel's Messiah. They rejected him. That opens the door up to the Gentiles and to the rest of us. Uh, But it's their Messiah. So unto us a child is born. Next, you see in Romans 9 and 5, it says that Christ came in the flesh from Israel, that he is an Israelite. So this woman giving birth to Jesus, that would represent Israel. Jesus came from Israel. That's the view uh, that I'm going to take. What does John see? When John sees this this woman, he sees her clothed with the sun, uh, the moon under her feet, and wearing a crown with 12 stars. So again, this this whole chapter tonight... I realize this, this may not be one of those lessons that gets us shouting, but we're studying the Word of God. We're seeing, we're seeing what's here, and I think that it's important. It's all profitable. All Scripture is profitable uh, according to the Word of God. So John sees this vision. He sees her clothed with, the, clothed with the sun, moon under her feet, wearing a crown with 12 stars. Uh, it's hard to say exactly what the symbolism means. Um, there have been... Some theologians that have connected this to Joseph's dream. Uh, in Genesis, I believe it's 39, Joseph has the dream um, that he sees the sun and the moon and the 11 stars. He would be the 12th star. And all of them bowed before him. And so they, they kind of see a connection here with that. I've studied that. I'm not so sure of that connection. Uh, what I see here is it's possible that... Um, she being clothed uh, with the sun represents a special glory and the exalted state of Israel. I believe that's probably a far more likely uh, interpretation. Israel, after all, is God's chosen uh, people, and she does have a special exalted place uh, in God's eyes from the beginning until now. The 12 stars, I think that's probably an easier representation. Most likely that represents the 12 tribes of Israel, and I think that would, that would make sense uh, with the text. Let's look at verses 3 and 4 real quick. And there appeared another wonder in heaven, that's another sign or another symbol, in heaven, and behold, a great red dragon having seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns upon his head. Now we are introduced. Uh, one more scripture, three and four. And his tail drew the third part of the stars of heaven and did cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman which was ready to be delivered for to devour her child as soon as it was born. This is important uh, for, for us to read. So we are introduced at this point. Uh, that is one artist's rendering of this red dragon. Again, this is symbolism, so anyone who thinks that's how that's what Satan actually looks like, that's not the point. 
This is not what Satan actually looks like. That's just a painting of the symbol that John possibly saw. But what John saw was a symbol, right? So when you think of the devil, because of uh, this symbolism and because of um, what others have done in their drawings and stuff, you probably think of a red guy with a with a crazy tail and you know steam coming out of his ears and that kind of thing. That's not uh, a accurate representation of the devil. In fact, Paul said that Satan often appears as an angel of light. So he's not somebody that's going to, uh, his appearance isn't going to look like that at all. This is just symbolism. But this is Satan. The symbol does represent Satan. We know that from verse 9. Uh, we'll talk about that later. What is a dragon? A dragon is a ferocious, destructive creature. So whenever we think about this, again, this is not talking about, the point is not Satan's looks. That's not what the symbolism is trying to get you to focus on. It's trying to get you to focus on the character of Satan. Peter called him a roaring lion. Jesus said that he was a murderer from the beginning. We know that he's a liar and the father of lies. So when we see the symbolism of Satan here in Revelation, it's trying to point out that he's a destructive character. Uh, he's he's not a he's not a good guy. This is the evil guy in the in the grand story of the redemption of the world. This is this is the this is the this is the foe that has been fighting against uh, God and His will and His people from the beginning of time. The dragon is described by John. John sees the dragon as having seven heads and ten horns. Uh, I believe that that represents the seven world powers. You have a connection if you go back to Daniel. Daniel sees uh, symbolism that is very much uh, like this. Seven heads, ten horns. Uh, probably this would represent the seven consecutive world powers that ran their course under Satan's power. Uh, that would be Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome. And the seventh would be the next empire that is going to be under the reign of the Antichrist. It's a future world power that's going to, uh, going to come into existence. The ten horns are going to represent, uh, probably I would say the most, you can't say for certain, but I would say the most likely interpretation of this is that it's going to represent a ten-nation confederacy who will be under the reign of the Antichrist. You say, why Why would we go that direction in interpretation here? It says that on the seven heads is seven crowns. There are two words for crowns. Uh, there's, the, there's the victor's crown, and there's the diadem, uh, or it's the crown that is worn by rulers. These crowns that are on the seven heads is not a victor's crown it's not a crown of achievement it's a crown of royalty so that is where we get the idea that these seven heads represent seven nations or seven kingdoms um, and then the ten horns are going to represent a, a confederacy if you will of ten nations that will be under the rule of the antichrist as we read here uh, satan led a rebellion of a third of the angels. So next, John sees in his vision the dragon ready to destroy the child as soon as he is born. So we're looking at the symbolism here as we're reading uh, verses 3 and 4. 
He drew his he and he and his tail drew the third part of the stars of heaven. Uh, the stars of heaven have frequently when it's not when it's not used as symbolism. But again, this chapter is highly symbolic. So when this is not used as symbolism, we can point to that be, being maybe meteorites or asteroids. But because it's symbolism, the symbolism of stars often represents angels. So it's it's best to understand that as Satan drawing a third part of the angels of heaven uh, onto his side, and they were cast to the earth. Uh, the dragon stands before the woman, who, which was ready to be delivered, for to devour her child as soon as it was born. So John sees this vision, he sees this dragon, red dragon, uh, and the dragon is standing over this lady, and he's ready to kill the child as soon as the child is born. This is more evidence of the fact that this is for sure Satan uh, that we're dealing with here. If you remember in the Gospels, when Jesus is getting ready to be born, Satan, uh, under he or Herod rather, under the influence of Satan, does his best to kill Jesus before Jesus is born. So he gives a verdict throughout the land. He says, kill every two-year-old baby. Uh, make sure they're all dead. He tries his best to kill uh, Jesus before Jesus is even born. He ended up failing. What does Satan try to do after that? Satan waits a little bit longer, uh, finds Jesus in the wilderness, and begins to tempt Jesus. Because as good as killing Jesus, if he could get Jesus to stumble in sin, that's as good as killing him because that subverts the purpose of God. So Satan tempts Jesus in the garden. Jesus fights the temptation. How does he fight the temptation? How do we fight our battles? With the word of God. That's how we fight. I know there's, I know the, the song and everybody loves it. This is how we fight our battles. Uh, and they think that's worship and praise, but I have Bible that says that we fight our battles with the word of God. And that's what Jesus did when Satan came knocking on his door. He didn't hesitate. He quoted scripture. And when Satan half quoted scripture, Jesus uh, responded back with complete quotes of scripture. Cause that's how we fight our battle. And Jesus withstood that temptation, right? So he, he manages to defeat Satan there. Satan fails a second time uh, to try to destroy Jesus. There's another point where um, I believe it was definitely a work of Satan. They try to stone Jesus to death. Jesus, the Bible says, uh, just kind of disappeared from the, from the middle of them. They were unable to kill him. So that's another attempt Satan constantly trying to destroy Jesus. And then we get to the cross, right? And you know that all of hell rejoiced at Jesus dying on the cross because they didn't understand why Jesus was there. I believe tonight that Satan was as confused as the Jews were. Because remember, they were looking, Brother Jeff, for a conquering king. They were looking for somebody, Brother Kendall, to come and take over the Roman Empire, to destroy the Roman... They were looking for the king of Revelation to come. And I believe Satan was looking for that as well. And so when Jesus goes to the cross and dies, I think all of hell rejoiced over that. Because they believed they finally thwarted the will of God and the plan of God. They were victorious over, over God. Only to find out three days later that they had just accomplished the will of God for Christ. Amen. And he rose from the dead and he took hell uh, and the grave captive behind him. 
Amen. He led them captive. So we see the, the symbolism of this red dragon standing over this woman who's ready to give travail. We know that this child, we'll see that later, that the child is uh, Jesus. We know that Satan has been trying from the beginning of time to destroy Jesus and Jesus' work and Jesus' will. He is anti-God. He's anti-everything God. Amen. So that's the symbolism that we see here. We've got the dragon. The dragon is, is working against the Lord, pushing hard against the will of God. Let's look at verses 5 and 6. Verse 5, And she brought forth a man-child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron, and her child was caught up unto God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she had where she hath a place prepared of God, that they should feed her there a thousand two hundred and three score days. We won't take a long time on this scripture, but it's clear here that this child represents Jesus, his birth, his life, and his exaltation. Why do we say that? Because the scripture says, that he is going to rule all nations with a rod of iron. That's a quote of Psalm chapter 2, verse number 9, where it's speaking ahead of the Messiah who's going to rule the nations with a rod of iron. You can look in Revelation 19. In Revelation 19, we have Jesus described in the same way as a ruler who's going to rule with a rod of iron. Amen. It says her child was caught up unto God and to his throne. When did that happen? That happened at Jesus' ascension. Uh, Stephen said that he saw the Lord sitting on the right hand of power. So he was highly exalted because of his death. He was highly exalted. Uh, the Greek there is exalted higher than ever before. So we know that this is Jesus. And then verse number 6 so if you understand the lady as Israel, the child as Jesus, the dragon as Satan, then we, we're getting a, a sense, if you will, of who these end time players are going to be through the rest of the book of, of Revelation. This is an introduction, if you will, to the main players of the next few chapters. We read in, in verse 6 here, the woman fled into the wilderness where she hath a place prepared of God that they should feed her there a thousand two hundred and threescore days. So John sees this lady run into the wilderness where she is divinely protected. God has got a people in the end time. He's got his, his people as we read in Revelation chapter 7, 144,000 of Israel, faithful Israel, that he is going to uh, supernaturally protect and keep through the great tribulation. That number there, uh, 1,203 score days, is literally three and a half years. So for three and a half years, the Lord's hand of protection, divine hand of protection, is going to be on them. Let's look at the next few verses here. 7 through 9. And there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon fought and his angels and prevailed not, neither was their place found any more in heaven. And the great dragon was cast out, that old serpent called the devil and Satan, which deceiveth the whole world. He was cast out into the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. What's going on here? 
You probably, when you think of Satan, you may not think of him in this way, but did you know that Satan right now, today, has access into heaven? He has access to the throne of God. You don't believe me? Go to Job. What happens in Job? Job, the devil's Roman, he comes before the Lord. The sons of God present themselves before the Lord. The Lord has a conversation with him. Have you considered my servant Job? Literally, the Lord brings Job out as a sacrifice and hands him to Satan and tells Satan that he can destroy his life. And God's got confidence in Job that Job's not going to quit. Uh, he's, he's not going to uh, curse God. So we know from Job that Satan today, right now, has access to the throne of God. You say, what is he doing? He's a fallen angel. There's, there's no good in him. There's no good in his minions. How, why does he have access to the throne of God? What role does he play? Why is God allowing that? Right here in these verses, in the verses that are going to follow, we see two great conflicts playing out. This particular conflict is in heaven. The next one's going to be on earth as a result of this conflict here in heaven. So what's Satan doing? Satan is playing the role of accuser. What's Satan doing in heaven? How come he has access to the throne of God? Literally, Satan stands night and day at the throne of God, Brother Corey, standing before the Lord, and all he does day and night is remind the Lord of everything you've done wrong. That's his role. He's the accuser. Night and day, accusing the brethren. How does that make you feel? Satan right now, what's Satan doing? He's standing before the Lord and accusing you and accusing me and reminding God of everything that we've ever done wrong. He's there even now, right now having access. He's the accuser of the brethren. Thankfully though, I'm reminded of a couple of old songs. I love them both. One says this, Though the restless foe accuses, Sins recounting like a flood. Every charge our God refuses, Christ has answered with His blood. You say, well, that's not, a, it's not, a, it's not great news that Satan's up there accusing. It, it, it may make us uncomfortable to know that Satan's up there accusing, but I can lay my head at, at bed at night knowing that none of his accusations are going anywhere because my sins are under the blood of Jesus Christ. At baptism, when you're baptized in Jesus' name, you've got the blood of Jesus Christ applied to your life. And so Satan can accuse all day and all night, and he can remind God of everything you've done, and the Lord will look back at him and say, I don't remember any of it. I've thrown it as far, the psalmist says, as far as the east is from the west. How far is that? You can't get from the east to the west. So he may be there accusing right now, but he's not accomplishing anything as long as we have the blood of Jesus Christ applied to our lives. I love what this other song says. It says, I hear the accuser roar of ill that I have done. I know them all and thousands more, but Jehovah findeth none. I'm thankful for that. I'm not worried today... 
should, have I done things wrong? Absolutely. I've got a whole list of things, and I know you have as well. There's nobody in here who hasn't messed up, who hasn't fallen. Who, there's, not a, there's no one who is not a sinner in this place. You're either a sinner saved or you're just a sinner. Those are the options. But we're all sinners. Everyone has sinned, the Bible says. No one, has, no one is without sin. So none of us should be comfortable unless... We have the blood of Jesus. And then we ought to sleep at night uh, peacefully knowing that the blood of Jesus is covering us even though Satan is accusing us. So what's happening though? One day, Satan is going to be accusing and then there's going to be a war in heaven. And what's going to happen? During this war in heaven, and I believe that there's a correlation here. I believe that the rapture of the church correlates with Satan being removed from his place as accuser. Because as the church goes to heaven, Satan is barred from heaven. He's barred from his role as the accuser. So the rapture takes place, if you will, if you can imagine, and as that happens, Satan's job as accuser is no longer acceptable because we're there with the Lord for eternity. It's, it's, it's already settled. We've already been judged. So Satan at that point, There's a war that takes place in heaven. He and his minions are cast down to the earth and barred forever from heaven. That's what we see here happening. The great dragon was cast out, that old serpent, called the devil and Satan, which deceiveth the whole world. And think about that right there. Deceiveth the whole world. People think they're playing games with God. They, they're, they're smarter than God. They're smarter than the Bible. Satan's deceiving a lot of people in the world. There's deception that's going on. That's why it's important that we stay in prayer and stay in a prayer room and stay, stay sensitive to the Spirit of God. We need discernment today. So he was cast down into the earth. His angels were cast out with him. Let's look at verses 10 through 12 here. And I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, now is come salvation and strength in the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ for the accuser of our brethren is cast down, which accused before our God day and night. Just in case you thought that I was getting ahead of myself, it's right there in the word of God. That's what Satan's doing right now. Until this day, he will be accusing us day and night before God, but he's going to be cast down. And we overcome, and they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb, and by the word of their testimony, and they loved not their lives unto the death. Therefore rejoice ye heavens, and ye that dwell in them. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth, and of the sea. For the devil is come down unto you, having great wrath, because he knoweth that he hath but a short time. So at this point, The church is in heaven. Satan's cast down to the earth. And he knows that he's just got a little while. Some people would say it's it's seven years. Uh, We can argue about the timeline. What we do know is that it's not a long time that Satan has to work. And so he makes war on the earth. This, uh, the war that takes place on the earth is what we're going to see in these next few verses. Look at verses 13 through 15. 
And when the dragon saw that he was cast under the earth, he persecuted the woman which brought forth the man-child. And to the woman were given two wings of a great eagle that she might fly into the wilderness, into her place where she is nourished for a time and times and half a time from the face of the serpent. And the serpent cast out of his mouth water as a flood after the woman that he might cause her to be carried away of the flood." So after being thrown out of heaven, we see Satan here completely enraged, angry, and he pours out, or he begins to pour out his wrath on faithful Israel by attempting to eradicate them from the earth. And by the way, this is not the first attempt that Satan has made. In fact, I believe that this is one of the greatest evidences of the truth of the Bible. What am I talking about? I'm talking about the persecution of Israel, the persecution of Jewish people. How can it possibly be that from as early as we can go back, all the way back to Abraham until now, today, 2021, the Jewish people have been persecuted and hated of all men? How can that possibly be? What could possibly be the motivation of people from different times and different generations? Every generation has somebody that hates the Jews and wants to destroy them and wipe them off the face of the earth. It only makes sense if the Bible is true. It only makes sense with the narrative of Scripture. Why? Because they're God's chosen people. That's why Satan hates them. And he believes that if he can wipe them out, that he will stop the plan of God and the kingdom of God from coming to fruition, from being established on this earth. That's why he has motivated people throughout history to attack the Jewish people. That's why uh, here in the Great Tribulation, he's going to mobilize all of his forces, all of the forces of the end time against the Jewish people because he believes that if he can wipe them out, he stops the will of God. It only makes sense from a biblical perspective. There's no other worldview that anyone can come up with that makes sense why the Jewish people of all the people on the earth are hated uh, so frequently throughout history. It only makes sense uh, from a biblical worldview. Without Scripture, impossible to make sense. But what do we find here? We find that uh, for a time and times and half a time, three and a half years, They are protected, as was stated uh, earlier in in the chapter. They're being supernaturally taken care of by God. Satan is going to try to destroy them. Now, there are many people, and and the serpent cast out of his mouth water as as a flood after the woman that he might cause her to be carried away of the flood. Now, there are some people that take that literally. Um, I have a hard time taking that literally, especially since... This is a symbolic chapter, highly symbolic. John has told us uh, from the start that this chapter is full of symbolism. So what do I see happening right there? I see Satan, literally, that's him mobilizing his forces, coming against Israel. That's a military attack, I think, that is going to be uh, armed against Israel. Um, The people of God trying to wipe them out. Verse 16 says, And the earth helped the woman, and the earth opened her mouth and swallowed up the flood which the dragon cast out of his mouth. So however that looks like, 
the Lord supernaturally steps in and protects His people during this time. How is that possible? All I know is that if, if God can open up the Red Sea and His people can walk across on dry ground, if they can be fed from manna from heaven, if they can be dying in a desert, thirsty, and God causes water to, to flow out of a rock, this is not too hard for God. God can protect His people through the great tribulation. He can do it. We believe that. Verse 17, we're coming, uh, we're going to wrap this up. That's all we're going to study tonight is, is the 17 verses. And the dragon was wroth with the woman and went to make war with the remnant of her seed, which keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. And so here's the key. After all of this, after a constant attack of Israel, does he let up? Absolutely not. He doubles down. And he just, and it makes him angry and he comes against them. But notice what makes him mad. Notice what makes him angry. Which keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. It's not just Jewish people that's angering him. It's not just people in general that stirs Satan up. It's people that keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. And I want you to know, not don't want to make anyone uncomfortable, but I want you to know that that applies very much to us today, to the church today. Satan has no problem with Christianity with no power, with Christianity with no conviction, with Christianity with no word. He has no problem with someone carrying the name of Christian but not following through on what it means to be a Christian with no, with, with no Christ-likeness. He has no problem with that Christianity. What he has a problem with and what he's always had a problem with are those that keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. As we get closer and closer to the end times and Satan starts pushing in this world harder and harder, it's going to become more and more uncomfortable for people that are committed to the name and committed to the word. I'm just, I am just uh, crazy enough to decide that I'll stand on the word anyways. Because if there's anything that our study of Revelation is teaching us, it's that, and we'll talk about it at the end here, it's that Satan is powerful, that's absolutely true. But he loses. He fails. He has failed every time. He has failed in every attempt to overcome the people of God. My Bible says that if Jesus builds His church, that the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So as long as we're on this earth, we cannot fail if we stand on the Word. If we've got His name and His Spirit, we cannot fail. And those uh, Jews that are left, those faithful Jewish people that are uh, following Jesus in that day, they're going to be at their wits end, their, their last strength, their hope uh, seemingly lost. And we're going to see as we study the rest of Revelation that Jesus is going to come to their aid because He protects those that are His. Jesus loves those that are His. Amen. Jesus loves those that are His. It bothers me whenever we attack uh, other Christians. Why? Because Jesus loves those that are His. Whenever you accuse the brethren... Now, I'm not talking about not pointing out the obvious. 
It's one thing to acknowledge that somebody has messed up. It's another thing to beat them over the head with their sin. As Christians, we should be trying to pull them back. Get them back into the house of God. Love them back into the presence of God. That's what we're trying to do. We acknowledge they messed up, but we're not going to leave them there. We're going to do our best to get them back into the house of God. If you spend your time, and I don't, this is not in my notes, but I just feel it. If you spend your time accusing the brethren, reminding them of everything that they've done, bringing up dirt in their past, you have far more in common with Satan than you do with Jesus. Because Satan is the accuser. And what's going to happen to the the accuser he's going to get cast out of heaven there's no room for the accuser in heaven that job's already taken it's already being filled and eventually even he's going to run out of time so I don't want to be on that side of the aisle I want to spend my time rescuing people from the hand of Satan I want to spend my time making sure that I'm pulling as much Christians as I can closer in their walk with God that's what matters Amen. And I love the lost and we're reaching for the lost. But you know what I love? I love what Jesus loves and Jesus loves his people. So don't just spend so much time reaching for the lost that you forget to reach for those that are here. Love those that are here. Love the people of God. And if we can learn to love each other, how will all men know that we are his? By our love one for another. Amen. That wasn't in my notes. That was just free tonight. So what is, I'm coming to a close if you want to stand. What is chapter 12 done then? Here are our key takeaways for tonight. Chapter 12 has introduced us to all of the main players that are involved in the end time drama. You've got Israel who's going to play a central uh, key spot in the end time drama. You've got the dragon, Satan. He's going to play a significant, obviously, he's the anti, he's, he's going to influence the Antichrist. Antichrist is going to be his man. So he's a key player in the end time drama. Then we are introduced, um, obviously, to the Lord and the Lord's work. He's a key figure. He is the key figure of the end time drama. What is, what is Revelation? It's the unveiling or the revealing of Christ. It's him coming and taking back his kingdom. So here are the takeaways. I mentioned this last week, and, and sometimes there's going to be a uh, follow-over. We see that God is a promise keeper. What am I talking about? Whenever I read New Testament, book of Revelation, into the world, that God still plans to keep his promises to Abraham. He still plans for there to be a remnant, a seed of Israel, faithful Israel, that is saved. I know God's a promise keeper. You say, well, that's Israel. How does that apply to me? Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. If He's a promise keeper to Israel, He is a promise keeper to us. If He's going to do it for Israel, He's going to do it for us. We're going to see Him face to face. We can count on it. He's a promise keeper. The other takeaway is this, and this is important. So, so, so important. I always mention two mistakes that we make when, when talking about Satan and demons. Mistake number one, not believing they exist. That's a problem. They exist. The spirit world is real. 
There are influences behind things. You need to make sure that you're protecting your home and your family from the influences of Satan and, and Satan's agenda. The other mistake, though, which is just as critical, is thinking too much of him. You need to have a balanced approach to Satan. Satan is powerful, true, but Satan will always fail. Satan is powerful, but I do not have to fear him. I do not have to fear his influence or his forces in my life or over my family. We are under the blood of Jesus. We've got the hand of God on us. We're his people, his bride. He's going to take care of us. So that's the takeaways tonight as we're looking and we're studying this end time drama. I love this. You can't read this book and think that there's any way that, that Satan has got a chance. He has no chance. Only Jesus is going to walk away victorious. I wonder if Brother Matthew would mind turning on some music. And we're going to take a moment to pray. And I wonder if you could just remind yourself tonight in prayer. Just thank the Lord that he's a promise keeper. And thank him that even though his foe has power, Satan is not his equal and opposite. Jesus reigns, Jesus is in control, and the only power Satan has is delegated authority. It's power that Jesus has given him, and he's going to take that power away soon. I wonder if you could find a place to pray right now, and let's do that. Let's play in that direction. Let's thank the Lord for the fact that he's a promise keeper tonight.